This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's John Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see johncast.net. Hello, I'm Jake, and I am lucky enough to be joined today by one of our Jodcast veterans, Ben Shaw. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about lucky, but yeah, here I am. It's quite weird being on this side of the mic. Yeah. Have um, you ever been interviewed before? I'm no. guessing no. I've done Ask an Astronomer, mm. but I've never done an actual interview. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, those of you who recognise my voice may remember myself and Charlie were Jake's predecessors. Effectively, we ran the Jodcast for two years, although I have to say you're doing a much better job. This will go out on the 15th, whereas ours almost never did. I don't know, Ben. I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to tempt fate like that. <laughs> well, for, you're recording this on the 8th. Yes, we are. We would have recorded this on the 14th. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So just purely from a logistics point of view, you're doing a way better job than we did. So there you go. Uh, Well, we'll we'll see what happens. I'm I'm still not comfortable enough to make promises at this stage. (laughs) But at the moment, on the 8th when we're recording this, we can live in hope. Indeed. That's all we can do. Yeah. Okay, so we've got you here for a job fight today, Ben, because you have had a paper out recently. Yes, I have. That's my nth paper. I can't remember what number it is, um, but I'm, I'm a fourth-year PhD student. Um, I'm about to undergo the horror of my PhD viva, which is the oral exam where you defend everything you've done in the last four years. Um, and one of the things we did... Um, so I'm interested... I'm a pulsar astronomer. I'm interested in... Um, well, pulsars are kind of famed as these accurate clocks. And if you look at a pulsar, you've got a pretty much perfect clock in the sky, which isn't really true. Most pulsars are actually pretty rubbish clocks, actually. In order to turn them into good clocks, we need to understand why they're bad clocks. And I work on trying to understand those bad clocks as much as I can. Um, and one of the, as it, as it were, timing irregularities that we encounter quite a lot of these things called glitches which is where the pulsar is spinning at its normal happy rate of rotation and then suddenly it speeds up and we observe it rotating much much faster and so recently um, in fact it was on the let me get my dates right it was on the 7th or the 8th of november 2016 the crab pulsar which is probably the most famous pulsar in the sky arguably underwent its largest glitch that we've ever observed in that source since we started observing it in 1968. That wasn't meant to be part of my thesis, but it suddenly glitched and then it became quite a major part of my thesis. Uh, And yeah, we've just just published the paper on our results. Well, the universe does love to keep us on our toes. It does, yes. Okay, so you've mentioned these glitches that you're interested in studying with this particular pulsar. With regards to these speed changes, is it a gradual process or is it an instantaneous step that we might be able to see in our data? Generally, it's seen as instantaneous. I mean, it probably isn't. Nothing in the universe is instantaneous, probably. But the resolution we have allows us only to see the rotation rate before the glitch and the rotation rate after the glitch. Um, And we can see when we compare those two things that there's been a change to the rotation rate. We generally don't see the change happen itself. So in that sense... The change, we say the change is unresolved because we don't actually see it happen. We just see the pre-glitch rate, we see the post-glitch rate, and we don't see the actual glitch itself. With this particular glitch, however, we did catch some of it. Most of it, I think 90, let me get my numbers right, 93% of the glitch was unresolved. So we managed to resolve 7% of the total spin-up, which is unusual. And it's also unusual because most models of glitches predict that these spin-ups should take place on timescales of a few minutes, or at the most, sort of tens of minutes, maybe. However, this glitch, 
the unresolved part happened fairly quickly. Okay. And then this delayed bit that we managed to catch in action, this 7% of the total spin-up, actually rose, its, it's spin frequency rose over 1.7 days. Oh, okay. So it's incredibly extended. Now, we've seen this before in two other crab glitches. Um, not to this extent. There was one in 1989 that took, I think, half a day to spin up, and then one in 1996, which maybe took a few few hours or, or more. Uh, but this one was 1.7 days. So it's really interesting to us because it's the only instance we've ever seen this happen. These delayed spin-ups are possibly common. We don't know. The the reason we were able to see this, I should say, in the crab is because we observe it a lot. So we've got a telescope at Jodrell Bank, the 42-foot telescope. Um, basically, if the crab is above the horizon, we're watching it. So we're able to get extremely high... Ca- the word is cadence we use in radio astronomy. It means if something's high cadence, it means we observe it a lot. Um, so these high cadence, very long dwell time observations of the crab have allowed us to actually see this delayed spin-up. So most of the pulsars we watch at Jodrell Bank, we, we time around 900 pulsars in total um, routinely. And we usually observe them with a cadence of one every two weeks, one observation every two weeks. We look at the pulsar, we look at the predicted time of arrival, given what we already know about the pulsar, we compare the arrival time versus that prediction and see whether it just about looks like it's supposed to. And every two weeks we do that for each pulsar. So if one of these other pulsars glitches in the middle of that those two fortnightly observations, mm-hmm. we would never see this delayed spin-up. Ah, okay. Simply because we're observing so infrequently. Yeah. So it may well be the case that if we had one telescope for every glitching pulsar out there and we just continuously watched it, these delayed spin-ups may well be common. But we've no way of knowing because the crab's the only one, really, that we observe with such high cadence. And you've got a lot of other objects scattered across the sky that you want to keep tabs on. Exactly, exactly. I mean, 900 pulsars to keep an eye on is quite a lot of telescope time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's important that we have that 42-foot telescope because the Lovell telescope, although that does most of our routine timing, um, we have to divide its time between 900 pulsars and, you know, all that other science that other people want to do as well. So yeah, it's tricky. I wouldn't like to be the scheduler on Lovell. Yeah. It, it sounds like <laughs> a difficult job. Yeah. Right. So this kind of... Well, this delayed spin-up behaviour. So this has never been observed in any other pulsars. No. But okay. that could be just, a, as I say, that could be just a selection effect. We don't know. Mm, it could be. What, one thing we do know, however, the Vela pulsar, which we can't see that from Jodrell Bank. It's too far south. Um, the telescopes in the southern hemisphere that observe it with almost as, as high cadence as we do the crab. Um, and it's been shown to glitch exactly as models predict. Within The, the spin-up has been resolved to within a few minutes. And so that behaves itself according to the models, whereas the crab doesn't. Okay. So I think what ideally what we need to do is we need to time a lot more pulsars with as much cadence and dwell time as we do the crab and vela, because we've no idea which of those two is typical. Right. Which is the problem. And it's like, you know, we, we have all this data on the crab and it's it's trying to, you know, kind of, to me, it's like um, uh, an anthropologist doing a study on the behaviour of children by studying one child with ADHD. Right. You you wouldn't be able to extrapolate to all of children if you're only studying a single child who doesn't mm. behave in a typical way. And so I don't think we're really probing the full glitch parameter space with the crab. Yeah, that makes sense. So we can't say at this point whether the crab is perhaps one of a special subclass of pulsars. 
no. or whether it's maybe the norm. Exactly. Oh, okay. Exactly. Well, it certainly sounds like there's a lot more work to be done. There's a lot more work to do, a lot more radio telescopes to be built so we can have one radio telescope per pulsar. <laughs> <laughs> Funding welcome. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I guess the one big question that I haven't touched on yet is to how these glitches arise. What's What's the physical mechanism that drives them? We don't know exactly. We've sorted out the broader details, we think. Now, there are two prevalent models. One is um, related to the crust of the neutron star, and another is related to the interior. So let's start with the crust one first. You can imagine when a, a pulsar first forms, it's spinning incredibly rap rapidly. And over time, that rotation speed decreases. So the, the pulsar has a magnetic field. The rotation of that magnetic field has a braking effect on the pulsar. If you spin a magnetic field, you create an electric field, and that electric field opposes the rotation of the spinning magnetic field, and so gradually your pulsar slows down. Ah, okay. I'm desperately clinging on to undergrad electromagnetics <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I'm having to revise all my undergrad electromagnetism to pass ah. this viva next week. Um, and so gradually, you can imagine, you know, if you extrapolate back in time to when the pulsar was born, its rotation rate was incredibly rapid. Now, if you look at the Earth and the way the Earth spins, if you draw a line from equator to equator straight through the centre of the Earth, and then you draw another line from pole to pole, you'll find that the line from equator to equator is longer. And that's because the Earth is kind of a squashed ball. Yeah. And that's because it's rotating, it's spinning, the angular momentum makes it kind of almost bow out in the what we call centripetal force. Um, and of course, when a pulsar is born, it's spinning at ridiculously high speeds. Um, How high is ridiculously high? It could be uh, as little as milliseconds when it first forms, and then it slows down incredibly rapidly to the... So, some pulsars still spin at millisecond speeds, but they have a different evolutionary history, so we'll disregard those for now. The pulsars okay. that I work on, which are the isolated pulsars that have never had a companion star, they will gradually slow down over time. Um, and so you can imagine when these pulsars form, they're oblate, they're, they're like a rugby ball shape. And when they form, that crust crystallises into this rugby ball shape. And then as the pulsar slows down... Its equilibrium shape is no longer a rugby ball. But at this point, that crust is now solid. At th this point, that crust is now solid. And so because its equilibrium shape is more spherical than it was when it formed, this crust starts to accumulate stress. Ah, uh, okay. So it will want to deform and assume this new equilibrium shape. Yeah, exactly. So it will want to move itself towards being more spherical as the pulsar slows down. But of course, it's a rigid crust and it can't. And so what might happen is that we end up with these plates forming on the crust of the neutron star that gradually give rise to starquakes, where instead of a gradual, almost sort of plastic creep towards being spherical, it actually just sort of jolts itself into a more spherical geometry. And when we do that, we change what's called the moment of inertia, which is a, a weird quantity which is related to the the way the pulsar is rotating and how fast it is rotating. Isn't it also shape-dependent as well? Yeah, absolutely. The so, moment of inertia is shape-dependent. I've got undergrad mechanics coming back to me now as well. Yeah, indeed. Um, and so when you, when you change the moment of inertia very suddenly of the pulsar, you change the rotation speed and make it go faster. Right. However, there is, we've mentioned the Vela pulsar already. It glitches maybe once every year or so, and its glitches are all massive. Really, really big glitches like part, the order of parts per million, which is huge. Now, the amount of energy that would be required from the crust 
to produce those glitches cannot be accounted for by this gradual change of the geometry of the pulsar. There just isn't enough energy available in the stress in the crust to account for those glitches. And so we don't think that's a prevalent mechanism. It may explain some smaller glitches, but it certainly can't explain glitches as a whole. And so the other more readily accepted model is related to the interior. So what we think is going on in the inside um, of the neutron star is that there is a superfluid. So this is like a, a superfluid is like um, almost inertia-free fluid. You can imagine if you if you stir your cup of tea, you'll you'll produce this nice spinning vortex in the cup of tea, and gradually, because of the friction between the liquid and the cup, and the friction between particles in the liquid itself, that fluid will gradually slow down, and then the tea will be nice and flat again. Yeah, with a su- exactly. With a superfluid, you don't have those inertial forces inside the fluid. So if you stir your tea and then take your spoon out, your tea will just keep rotating forever. Because it has no internal friction. Because it has no internal friction. It has nowhere to dissipate this energy to. And so we think there's a similar sort of fluid in the inside the neutron star. And that comes from the fact that we can observe some of these glitches to recover over timescales of several days or months that kind of tells us that there's something superfluid going on in the pulsar if it was a normal fluid it would couple to the crust the solid crust much quicker and so we don't think it's a normal fluid now one of the properties of superfluids is that unlike the cup of tea this normal fluid when you rotate it you produce a single vortex in the center and you could maybe draw lines of you could take one cell of fluid in your tea and track its motion around the cup, and it would produce nice circular lines around the cup. Yeah. With a superfluid, if you take, say, a bucket of superfluid helium and stir it, you won't be able to do that. It doesn't rotate. The fluid doesn't rotate in this bulk motion in the same way. What happens, if you look down in your bucket of superfluid helium, you'll find lots of vortices forming. So if you stir it really quickly, you'll find there's a lot of vortices and each of those vortices, those individual vort- one individual vortex, carries the angular momentum of the fluid. It's not carried in this bulk motion. If your fluid slows down, the number of vortices you see in your bucket of helium will reduce. So the density of vortices is related to the speed, the rotation speed of the fluid. Okay. So what happens when a superfluid slows down, if it's able to slow down, if it's weakly coupled to the crust... It's that these vortices in the neutron star fluid that are formed, because it's rotating, will gradually move outwards towards the crust. And at the crust, they'll be expelled. And that allows the fluid to slow down, because the number of vortices per area is gradually reducing. However, there isn't a perfectly... It's not like your cup of tea in the cup, where you have tea and then you have cup. In the neutron star, you kind of have tea, and then you have some of the cup... And then you have the rest of the cup. So it's kind of flowing through the lattice of the crust. So So we've got superfluid permeating through the crust at this point? It's permeating through the inner part of the crust. So the density of the crust is is changing as you go towards the neutron star. So it's non-uniform. And so what you have is this inner fluid rotating around inside this inner crust and it's passing through uh, nuclei. It's passing through lattice sites. It's passing through the actual structure of the crust itself. Now, it turns out, if you talk to a, a solid-state physicist, that it's energetically favourable for these vortices to become pinned to nuclei in the inner crust. So they will just become pinned to these lattice sites and they will stay there. 
So if they become pinned to these lattice sites, it means they can't expel themselves out of the fluid. Okay, so and they're still weakly connected to the rest of this fluid inside the core. Yeah, so they're, the, the fluid, if you can't expel these vortices out of your superfluid, your superfluid can't slow down. Hmm. Now, we've already talked about the breaking of the pulsar through the external magnetic field. And we've already alluded to the fact that the fluid inside is weakly coupled to the crust. So, because we're breaking the pulsar, we're imposing a breaking force on the pulsar crust by virtue of the fact that it has this strong magnetic field. The crust is slowing down, but the interior isn't because it's pinned to these lattice sites. And so you have in the inside, you have this fast, rapidly rotating fluid and on the outside, in the crust, you have this slower rotating crust. And every so often, for reasons we don't quite understand, the coupling strength between the fluid and the crust increases. And suddenly, the fluid is able to deposit its supply of angular momentum that it's built up into the crust. And we suddenly see the crust speed up. And we, what we see, all we see is the radio emission from the crust. And we observe that as a glitch. Oh, okay. Now, how, quite how these vortices become unpinned from the lattice sites is something we're still sorting out. We don't know how that happens. Um, there's a difference in the crab in the, if you look at the size distribution. So I've talked about the Vela pulsar and its glitches. They're all roughly the same size and they all happen sort of quite regularly. There'll be a glitch every two years or so, or every one to two years. Um, and all those glitches will be the same size. So the size distribution is flat. All the glitches are the same size. Whereas with a crab, the size distribution isn't flat. It's kind of a, almost like a bell curve. Most glitches are one size, but some of the glitches are bigger, some of the glitches are smaller. And so the size distribution is slightly different. And so that tells us something. Um, we don't really know what, but you can imagine it looks like with a Vela pulsar that we... If you can imagine that the inner fluid dumps its entire supply of angular momentum into the crust every time it has a glitch. So now you have a, a depletion of angular momentum in the superfluid at a glitch. And then over time, that superfluid builds back up its supply of angular momentum as the crust slows down, but the fluid doesn't. And then you get to a particular critical lag between the rotation of the fluid and the rotation of the crust, and then you trigger a glitch. Right. So it's a threshold effect. Right. But with pulsars like the crab, it doesn't seem like that's the case because we have glitches of all different sizes. And so there's probably no particular threshold effect going on. But what we think might be happening is this uh, thing called an avalanche process, where one vorte vortex might become unpinned from its lattice site, and then it will uh, interact with other vortices that are pinned to their lattice sites and free them, because they're only weakly coupled to these lattice sites. And so if you give it a little jolt with a nearby vortex, if one vortex becomes unpinned and that gives a little jolt to a nearby vortex and then that vortex becomes unpinned and gives a little jolt to another nearby vortex, you end up with this sort of avalanche of vortices suddenly becoming unpinned, um, being able to expel themselves from the fluid and causing an increase to the rotation of the crust. But that doesn't seem like a threshold effect purely because we don't see the crab exhibit glitches that are all the same size. So there's probably something else going on. So it looks like possibly there's a different mechanism probably to do with the superfluid, but there's a different trigger mechanism for glitches in vela-like pulse, vela pulsars and crab-like pulsars. We don't know what the difference is. 
Well, I'm pretty convinced that there is a difference now from everything <laughs> you've just told me. Uh, one thing we did notice in our paper, though, um, which you can read on the archive if you want. I think I, I wrote it, so it should be pretty understandable, I hope. I'm sure we um, can <laughs> track down a link to it somewhere to put in the um, show notes. One thing we did notice is there seems to be a correlation between the size of the glitch. We, we looked at the history of crab glitches, and other people have done this as well. Uh, and this particular large glitch happened after a very long period where there were no glitches. So, so we thought that's interesting. I think there was something like 2,189 days since the last glitch. Oh, okay. That's the longest period of time since we discovered the crab that it has gone without a glitch. So that led us to think, well, let's have a look at some other glitches and see how long it was since their last glitches. And it turns out there's a weak but very positive correlation between the size of a glitch and the time since the last glitch. So that tells us something. It tells us that possibly what's happening is that when a glitch happens, the fluid dumps its supply of angular momentum into the crust um, and then gradually that um, angular momentum builds back up as the crust carries on slowing down. But it doesn't reach a particular peak threshold like in the Vila Pulsar where all the glitches are the same size. Instead, it seems to trigger at random points in this lag. So you don't need a particular value of the lag to trigger a glitch. It seems to happen everywhere. And that potentially tells us something about this avalanche process, where it just suddenly happens that one or two vortices will become unpinned and trigger a load of others. Whereas in the Vila Pulsar, it seems that, for whatever reason, all the vortices unpin at once when some critical lag is reached between the rotation of the fluid and the rotation of the crust. Yeah. It strikes me as being analogous to sort of novae events, mm. where you're building up to some critical mass. You then have that release of energy producing an event with a certain magnitude. Yeah, like we, we see this in um, type 1 X-ray bursts as well, um, where you have a neutron star recruiting from a low-mass companion, and you get a lot of nuclear reactions forming on the surface, and then at some critical temperature that will induce one of these bursts um they, they seem to be threshold effects once you've reached critical temperature you can get these runaway nuclear reactions on the surface and then you end up with either a nova or an x-ray burst depending on what what's doing the accreting so that i think is analogous to what the vela pulsar is doing where it has uh, a particular size glitch every time yeah once you've met this critical point yeah whereas the crab and potentially quite a lot of other pulsars, it may well be that, you know, if, we, if we're using the nova or x-ray burst analogy, where, where you, you see an x-ray burst or a nova, regardless of how long it's been, regardless of what the temperature is in your x-ray burst or nova environment. So there's two, there's, there's, a, there's a weird thing going on where the threshold is different and we don't know why. Oh. Sounds like a job for another PhD student. It I sounds reckon. like a job for another PhD student. It sounds like we need to observe more glitches because we infer quite a lot about glitches as a phenomenon from the crab and vela. Yeah. And as I said earlier, it's possible that neither of them are typical. And that we, is possible. We, we really need to understand much better how other pulsars glitch. Unfortunately, there aren't that many pulsars that glitch very often. Most pulsars that we've seen to glitch have done so only once. Right, so these are, are serendipitous observations. Then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's this other pulsar called uh, JO537-6910, which is, is the most frequently glitching pulsar we know of. It glitches once every six months. And again, its glitches are all roughly but not quite the same size. And in that case, there's a correlation between the size of the glitch and the time until the next glitch. 
which is the opposite for what we saw in the crab, where the correlation seems to be between the size of the glitch and the time since the last okay. glitch. So that would suggest this other pulsar is then maybe more of a Vela-type object. Exactly. It suggests there's a threshold, a global threshold effect. The, the, fluid re- the fluid lag, the fluid crust lag has to reach a particular value, and then the thing just gives up and glitches. Whereas with the crab and pulsars like the crab, it seems to be quite stochastic and random in time. But there's still probably some local threshold effect going on that then triggers some global unpinning of the vortices. It's a nightmare. Mm. It does sound like a chaotic system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like a sand pile, right? If you if you if you've got a pile of sand and you you're dropping, you know, you're holding some more sand above it and dropping it onto the sand pile, and you see all these avalanches coming down, mm. um, and they trigger these little mini avalanches, and every so often you'll trigger a big avalanche, and it's completely you can't predict when that will happen. It's entirely stochastic. So yeah, glitches are interesting. <laughs> mm. Right. Ah, one thing we've not talked about yet. Well, we have talked about these crusts and superfluids, different layers, if you will, that make up neutron star. Mm. Can we say anything about what they're composed of? Because I take it this... We're not dealing with ordinary matter here. No, as I've said, we're we're dealing with superfluid matter for a start, which by definition isn't ordinary matter. Um, We think the crust itself is made of a rigid lattice of iron. Um. And then as you go further and further, so the density will increase as you go further and further into the neutron star. So if you stick a stick into the neutron star towards the, the core... Then you're um, not getting that stick back. You're definitely not getting your stick back. Um, but if, if that stick measures density, you'll find as you, as you probe your stick further and further in, your densityometer will get higher and higher and higher. Um, and we don't really know what's going on in the interior. We think it's a, a superfluid... Uh, made primarily of neutrons, which is why we call them neutron stars. As you go further and further in, you end up with other species as well. What's going on in the core of the neutron star is anybody's guess. It could be some weird sort of quark soup, like quark gluon plasma, or some bizarre exotic fluid. But you'd have to have you'd have to ask somebody like um, Anna Watts, possibly, um, what the constituents of a neutron star are, rather ah, okay. than somebody like me. I what I uh, what I observe. What I observe is radio emission from the crust, and that's it. Because hmm. that's all we can do with a radio telescope. Yeah. Radio doesn't tell us anything about the interior unless we see these glitches. This is really the only probe we've got of the interior of neutron stars, mm-hmm. is by observing these events. Because, so, I mean, even a technique like transmission spectroscopy, that's you're not going to cut the mustard with that. Probably not. Um, apart from anything else, neutron stars are tiny. So one doesn't have to be very far away before it becomes completely unresolved in your telescopes anyway. Yeah. Um, so we don't really see much in the way of emission from the crust itself unless it's extremely bright or extremely nearby. Well, I suppose now would be a good point to maybe move on to talk a little bit about your history on the Jodcast. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to say how bad can it be, but I know that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Pretty much all of our shows went out about 10 days late on average, but yeah. Um, yeah, I ran the Jodcast before you did with yeah. Charlie. Well, people still enjoyed the content. I hope so. I hope yeah. so. I thought we did a good job. Uh, I reckon you did a good job. Yeah, yeah. We weren't particularly um, punctual, as it were, but it got done eventually. Um, and of course, we had Jodcast Live as well, which we we organised, which was fantastic. That's probably as as 
stuff I've done on the Jodcast goes. That has to be my favourite day of them all because it was just amazing. So um, that's your top moment. That's my top moment is uh, when we got it because we really didn't know what it looked like. We had it planned with military precision and I was having this nightmare all day of what happens if nobody turns up. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were just about set up um, and then... Um, Sophia, who works at the Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre, came in and said, there's a massive queue of people outside waiting to come in. I was like, what? Brilliant. Yes, they're here. Because the tickets were free and, you know, people have lives and things come up and you think, well, oh yeah, let's, you know, assume because the ticket's free, people might not necessarily prioritise coming because mm. um, there's no wasted money element. But it was amazing. Everybody did and it was it was fantastic. I don't think we had many no-shows. It was great. Um, so, yeah, I was sad to give it up, but I'm glad to have given it up to people who obviously care about it so uh and you yeah. have the time to care about it as well yeah indeed um that will change oh, yeah. i mean, what, what year are you in now um so i'm coming towards the end of my second year now okay and are you hoping to be done by the end of your third um or will you be hanging around a bit longer well i'm on a three and a half year program so okay so yeah, for me, it's a question of how much data, if any, we're able to get from telescopes around the world. Sure. So yeah, because at the moment, the suite we've got access to at the moment has had a whole litany of technical problems. Mm-hmm. We've had one that was frozen in half a metre of ice. <laughs> we've got one with a wow. broken shutter. Okay. So yeah, the the Liverpool telescope, they've been having a, a rough time this season in their 2018B call. Right. Dealing with the extreme weather out there. Yeah. This is the problem with optical astronomy, I guess. Is it optical, the Liverpool? Yes. Yeah. Um, you have to have telescopes in these really weird sites, whereas you can plonk a radio telescope anywhere. There's no people, pretty much. Mm. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, I, I gather you'll probably be wanting to hand over the Jodcast in maybe a year's time then or so. Something like that. Yeah, probably something like that, I but imagine. Yeah. Prepare for problems. I mean, I was on a three-year problem. Problem. <laughs> it was a three-year problem. <laughs> I was on a three-year program. Not a three and a half year program, and oh, I'm okay. coming towards the end of my fourth year, and I'm still here. Mm. So, um, I haven't been paid for nearly a year. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> so it's a wonder I'm not sleeping in uh, under my desk in my office. Um, but I'll be here for a bit longer, actually. So hopefully, after my Viva, I'll be able to get involved in the Jodcast a bit more. I have a postdoc here. Um, oh right. So I'll be working on. Um, Something quite interesting, actually. I'll be working jointly with the European Space Agency. Okay. Um, and what we're trying to do is establish a pulsar timescale by, as I said right at the beginning of this interview, you can use some pulsars as clocks, but not most of them. We're hoping to use some of our best timers, the, the pulsars that behave themselves the most, to basically steer an atomic clock. Because currently, our GPS satellites have clocks on board those are atomic clocks, and those atomic clocks drift with respect to terrestrial time standards, and so we have to continuously correct them. We have to continuously steer them towards the right time ah, okay. by so using ground-based clocks. Relativistic effect by virtue of them being in space. Partially, although we can correct for that, it's generally just a difference in the, the, the drift rates of the two clocks. Oh, okay. So it's just the fact that you've got two isolated systems. Yeah, just the fact that they 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 keep time at different levels of precision, and so what we're going to be doing is looking at instead of correcting these clocks using some ground-based clock, is instead correcting these clocks using an ensemble of pulsars. So we're going to create ensemble pulsar time and use that to steer atomic clocks on board spacecraft, which can hopefully go towards things like 
navigation, because then we'll be able to autonomously navigate spacecraft without worrying about how far away they are, what delays um, there are in the signal from the Earth to the spacecraft, etc. Um, the clocks will basically be able to steer themselves by just keeping a, an eye on an array of pulsars. Okay. So that's hopefully what I'm going to be proving can happen as part of my postdoc. It's only 18 months, so I've got a lot of work to do. Mm, sounds like it. Yeah. And over the, you'll find as well over the course of your PhD that you end up with a bunch of ideas that you don't get time to do as part of your PhD. And you'll say, oh, that's a, I want to write a paper on that because that's a really good idea. And then it'll get to the end of your PhD and you'll realise you don't have time before your thesis is due. So I've got this stack of papers now that I want to write on top of my postdoc. So it's going to be a busy, busy few months, I think. Yeah, well, I'm hoping to get a student to take some of the... Uh, mm. Well, hopefully you'll me. get the chance to do that. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So it's going to be a busy, busy 18 months, but hopefully it'll be a fun one. Hmm. Well, I'm sure that all of our listeners will wish you the very best of luck with that. Thank you very much. Uh, I guess that seems like a good place to leave it, really. Excellent. Okay, so, Ben, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jake.